Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 61 for just a moment. Isaiah 61 will be there for just a little bit. Let me see your Bibles this morning. Or if you have an iPhone or an iPad, you can go ahead and turn that on. And uh, we're going to be in several different places this morning. With January 1st right around the corner, obviously many people are thinking about New Year's resolutions. How many of you honestly have already started writing down or in your mind thinking about some New Year's resolutions? Raise your hand. Ah, Some of you have. All right. I'm going to give you the top five this morning. This was from an article uh, recently that I looked at. Number five, stop smoking. Number four, make more money. Number three, improve relationships. And it just kind of left it open-ended so you can fill in the blank of the relationships that you need to improve on. Number two, exercise more. And number one, the most popular New Year's resolution, as always, what is it, church? Lose weight. And we look at that and say, "Ah, I don't need to do that. All of these resolutions, if you stop and think about it, are shouting something out to us, okay? And here's what it is. It says, I want to be different than I am right now. I'm not pleased with the way that I am, so I want to be different. I want to gain control of an area of my life, and if I could just get control of this one part of my life, then I could be happy, 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 right? I could be a new person. But you see, the problem with New Year's resolutions, they are rarely effective. We write them down, and about the first week or two, maybe the first month, we do pretty good, and then we just kind of fall by the wayside because our resolve to keep those resolutions, they get buried under time and our own lack of willpower. Over the past few weeks, We have been looking at some passages of Scripture in the Old Testament, some prophecies that have pointed us to the coming or the arrival of Jesus, okay? The idea of Advent. I want to take you back to Isaiah 61 for just a minute, and then we're going to move on from there. By the time of Isaiah, you remember the Jewish monarchy was in ruins. And so after about 586... Most of them had been carted off by their captors to live in a foreign land. But they knew in their hearts that they had been given a promise. They had been given a promise that someone was coming. Someone better than what they currently had. Then you remember in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Say that with me this morning, church. God with us. Say it again. God with us. And then over in the ninth chapter of Isaiah, beginning in verse 6, Isaiah says the government's going to be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it. And what's the key word there? Forever. And so while the most hopeful among the people of Israel and Judah envisioned one day 
taking back their homeland and recovering their independence. Isaiah's vision said, you know what? That is too small a dream for the God that I serve. So I want you to really see what's going to take place. And I love Isaiah 61 verse 3. Provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They'll be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. In other words, he's going to take something that was old, he's going to take something former, and he's going to make it brand new. It's Christmas just a few days ago, we opened up gifts, didn't we? And a lot of us opened up brand new toys, brand new clothes, brand new whatever. Now, if you open something up that was brand new, especially if you're a kid, and if it didn't work, what are you going to do? You're going to go back to mom and dad. They're going to take you back to the store where they bought it from, and you're going to stand in line with the million plus one people to return that merchandise, to change it, to trade it in for something new, for something that's going to work. Isaiah said, look at what God's going to do. He's going to take your former way of life, which at that time wasn't good at all. Hey, a lot of grieving going on for the people. And so what does he say? I'm going to give you a crown of beauty. I'm going to give you an oil of gladness. I'm going to give you a garment of praise. I'm going to give it all so it'll be called an oak of righteousness. So all of those things are going to do one thing. They're going to display the splendor of the glory of God. Church, only God can create something new like that. Only God can take something old and make it new, and it's going to be good. Now, I want you to fast forward to to Luke chapter 4 for just a minute. Luke chapter 4. Jesus begins to read and quote from the prophet Isaiah. He goes to Nazareth in verse 16, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his customs, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All of those things something brand new that had never been done before, that only Jesus could usher in and only Jesus could fulfill. And so then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and then he sat down. And then the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, today, this scripture, today, everything that I just read to you is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, here I am. All this hype and all this news that you've been hearing about, I'm it. 
I am here right before your very eyes. The scripture has been fulfilled. All of us here this morning stand in need of something new from God. All of us in this room stand in need of the very thing that we need the most that only God's Son can fulfill. We have a sin problem, don't we? And the only one that can take care of our sin problem is Jesus Christ. And so I want you to think about that this morning. And I want you to flip over now to Luke chapter 9. Beginning in verse 23. Then he said to them, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. And I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And some of the death rows across the United States, when a prisoner is taken to be executed, the guard that leads the procession shouts out this phrase, Dead man walking. It means get out of the way because this man is on his way to his execution. So some, out of respect, will stand or give a last word of encouragement for he's about to leave this life. You see, when a Roman official sentenced a man to death, he would shout, put a cross on the man. And the crossbeam was strapped to his arms and the victim had to carry it all the way to his site of crucifixion. And so when Jesus says, take up your cross, how often? Take it up every day. And so when Jesus says, take up your cross every day, he's telling us to consider ourselves like dead men walking. The sentence of death each day is is accepted because we die to ourselves. Now think about this this morning. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for a day, for a month, a year, or for 60, 70 years. Daily, we die to self. Is that hard to do? Oh, yeah, you're, you can shake your head, yes. That is a daily challenge in and of itself, isn't it? To die to the very things that I want. Because when you stop and think about it, at the core, we're pretty selfish people, aren't we? A lot of times we want things our way. And when it doesn't go our way, we pout, don't we? We sulk, kind of do this. Church, listen to me. There's a lot of times in life where you're not going to get your way. 
And what Jesus is saying here is when you decide daily to take up the cross and to carry it, you're making a decision every day, every moment to say no to what you want and to say yes to the lordship of Jesus Christ. See, everybody wants a savior, but not everybody wants to call him Lord. We want to be saved, but when it comes to the daily grind of living that out, boy, it's a whole different story, isn't it? I think when you look at the disciples' life, I think they began to die to themselves when they backed away from Jesus in the garden. See, the Gospels say they had all said, not me, Lord, I will never leave you. I would not die with you. But when they found out they would not overcome their own fear, they couldn't stay awake to pray the last hour they were with him. They couldn't stand with him, but they stood far off while he was dying. Peter couldn't even tell the truth. And then after he died, they couldn't remember what he said or just couldn't believe it. And even after the women came with the eyewitness accounts that it was true, they still couldn't believe and they didn't go to Galilee like they had been told. And finally, remember what Jesus does? He makes that personal appearance. They couldn't catch fish. And after the ascension, they couldn't just wait. They had to pick a replacement for Judas. And finally, they do what they should have done all along. They pray. And when they pray, realizing you can't do it, you ask for his life to do it in you, and suddenly this bumbling Peter, who can't even say is Jesus his friend, delivers this powerful message of conviction by the Holy Spirit. And what happened? Now, there's a lot that happened in between all of that. I'm kind of fast-forwarding a lot. But what happens? They died to their own way and their own strength, and they waited for the resurrected life of Jesus to operate in them. You see that same resurrection power that brought Jesus up out of the grave? That same resurrection power is available to us right now. The problem is sometimes we forget to tap into that. We forget that we're moved and we've been touched by the most powerful thing in the world, the very face of God. So the longer these men followed Jesus, what happened? They'd been changed. They left their old way of life to become a new person. See, Jesus has something to say about new. He has something to say about becoming new inside. Revelation 21, verse 5, Behold, I make all things new. And then Paul later agrees with that, and he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. So for this second half, let, let's see how that takes place. Look over in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Let's look in verse 6. You see, at just the right time, 
when we were still, what's the word, church? Powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At just the right time when we were powerless, at just the right time when we were at our weakest moment, when we were at a point in life where we couldn't do anything else, guess who steps in? Almighty God. At just about the time when you think nothing else can be done, I can't do anything else, God comes in and says, you know what, you're right, you can't do anything else, but I can, and here's how I can do it. I'm going to send my son, and he's going to go to the cross, and he's going to die a cruel death. And from that point on, just like we just read, you have a choice to make to rise up, to carry the cross as if we were dead men walking. And we do that every day. At just the right time. Church, you can always mark it down. God's timing is always right. God's timing is always on time, isn't it? So look at Romans chapter 6 for a moment. What do we say then? Do we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now remember something. When Paul is writing this, he is writing to Christians. He is writing to those that have already put on Christ. Okay, so this is serving as a reminder of what they've already done. And so as I read through this, I want you to go back in your mind right now to the time when you put Christ on in baptism. Now, if you have not made that decision, we are praying that as we read this, that you begin to see Look at the life change that can come into my life because of Jesus. And all he wants us to do is to accept it and to take hold of that. So I want you to think about where where you were, all the things that were going through your mind, the influential people and family members and friends that had an impact on that day. What a moment. And it's almost like every time we witness another baptism, I don't know about you, but it reminds me of the day that I made that decision. Right here in this church building, 
in this baptistry. My dad, who's here this morning, baptized me into Christ. My life was forever changed at that moment. Now, a lot of things happened leading up to that. Didn't just make the decision like that. Family, friends, you had an impact on a life-changing decision, the most important decision one will ever make. Because what you begin to realize is, I'm leaving an old way of life, and I'm taking on something brand new. That is a gift that nobody can give you except for Jesus. It's called the gift of new life. And so if we've been united with him, Paul says, like this in his death, we'll certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, without hitting the person next to you, do this right here. You've been free. You didn't think you would ever do that in church, did you? You've been set free from sin. Church, do you realize one of the most challenging things that we face every day the hardest thing that a lot of people face is this forgiving yourself forgiving yourself and giving it to God but you see what Paul reminds them of if anyone who has died you've been freed from sin And if we died with Christ, we believe we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. And underline this next verse, for sin shall not be your master because you're not under law, but you're under Look at that. Something brand new. Church, listen, when Jesus saved us, he didn't want to come rearrange the furniture of our lives and repaint the walls. When Jesus saved us, he wanted to start from scratch. It reminds me of a man that I read about several years ago selling an old warehouse. Building had been empty for months and needed repairs and gangs had damaged the doors and smashed the windows and thrown trash everywhere and as he showed a prospective buyer the property he took pains to say that he would replace the broken windows bringing in a crew to correct 
any structural damage and clean out the garbage. And the buyer just looked at him and smiled and he said, you know what? He said, I want you to just forget about the repairs because when I buy this place, I'm going to build something completely different. He said, I don't want the building. I want the site. Think about that with your own life. I think what Paul is saying in Romans 6, God, through his son Jesus, he doesn't want the building. He wants you. He doesn't want the building of your lives. He wants the site. He wants you so he can shape and mold you into the very person that he longs for you to be. Now, church, listen. If that's something that God is longing for us to be, then here's reality. It can happen. And we don't have to stay in our old way of life. We don't have to stay in the old way of sin because that is Satan ruling that. And from the very beginning of time in the garden, Satan was on the scene. Spiritual warfare began to take place. We still experience spiritual warfare today because Satan is at the helm of trying to get Christians, Christ-like people, to stay in the garbage that they've been in all their life. Paul says, when you were baptized into Christ, you died. You put all of that to death. And when you were raised, you were raised, what kind of person? Brand new. You traded in your old self for something brand new. And so as you look at Romans 6, here's what Paul says. I was dead because of my sinful nature. Number two, Jesus came and forgave all my sins. Number three, he made me alive. I was dead and he made me alive. You see, baptism is a lot like a wedding ring. Baptism's symbolic of the washing away of our sins. It's also symbolic of a new way of life. It's been said that baptism is to the Christian faith what the wedding ring is to a marriage. It's a symbol. And so just like that wedding ring, baptism draws a mark on the ground between the past and the future. Like the wedding ring, it says this, from this day forward, I stand with God. From this day forward, I take you, Christ, to be my Lord and to be my Savior from this day until I die, till death do his part. And then at that, we get a whole new reunion anyway, don't we? What a great day that's going to be. Do you live that kind of life? I don't know how many years it's been since you were raised up from the water. But when you raised up, you became a brand new person. You became a brand new creature. And it's not anything that you did. It's not anything that you deserved. It's all the gracious working of God through his son Jesus. One of my favorite Oswald Chambers quote is this. The thing that ought to make the heart beat 
is a new way of manifesting the Son of God. And so when January 1st hits, instead of all these resolutions that's going to make our bodies better, I'm not saying that's bad. I need to do that too. If you say amen to that, I'm going to get you after church. But here's what is more important than any of it. Have a heart like Jesus. Have a heart and a new way of manifesting his son every day. That's something that God puts within us all the time. And so when you look at a passage like this and you look at your own baptism, in church, isn't baptism a beautiful thing? Isn't baptism a beautiful thing to experience? It's a beautiful thing to see. Because when you look at it, you see, look at what Jesus did for me. He died for my sins. Look at what Jesus did with me. He empowered me to overcome sin. And look at what Jesus does inside of me. He puts his spirit right here. And every day of our life, what are we to do? We are to keep in step with his spirit. And I promise you this, church, when you keep in step with the Holy Spirit, good things are going to come your way. God's going to bless you to be a blessing to other people. I love the story that Bill Gothard tells of a farmer who became a Christian after a long sinful life. I mean, he had put it off many, many years. And after his baptism, this farmer would often be troubled with the memories of the things that he was ashamed of from his past. And so he'd be out plowing the field and the guilt and shame of what he had done in the past would just roll over him in waves till he could hardly stand it anymore. He was a good churchgoer and he knew that his feelings were wrong and he knew he'd been forgiven of all that, but the guilt was just that Satan's way of whispering in his ear. And Satan was trying to tear him down and get, his, get him to doubt his salvation. And he knew all of that. But he couldn't quite conquer the feelings that would come on him from time to time. And so one day as he was out plowing in the field, that old, the old doubts kept coming back to haunt him. And he became angry and he decided he's tired of Satan bringing up the past over and over again. And so he got down off the tractor, went out the back of the barn, and he drove a stake into the ground. And there beside that stake, he knelt down, confessed his sins all over again to God, and he went back out to the field and began to plow again. And from that day on, whenever his guilt came back to visit him, he'd go back to the back of the barn and he'd point to that stake, and here's what he would say. Satan, get out of here. Because right here is where my sins lie. And don't you be bringing them up again because they've been forgiven. And for that old man, he needed to do that. And the story goes on to say he did it daily until he died. You know, when you stop and think about it, every one of us need to go to that stake in the ground, don't we? Because Satan is always there haunting us, 
Satan is always there trying to bring something up in our mind that we've done, something in our mind that we said that we knew we shouldn't have done or said, when in reality, in Christ, what kind of person are we? We're brand new. Sin is not our master anymore. You know, the one thing that Satan hates is resurrection. He hated it when it happened to Jesus because he thought that he had defeated death and he really hates it every time a new person is raised up from the waters of baptism because they're resurrected and they're saved. I don't know where you are in your life this morning, but as we bring a year to a close and as we're on the brink of another year, I think what that farmer learned was what God wanted us to learn daily. Whenever we're faced with guilt and temptation of the past, we need to revisit our baptism. We need to revisit that moment when we said, yes, I'm going to stand with you, God, and I'm going to leave this former way of life. What a deal. What a deal. And we get to experience new life and new birth every day. Let's bow as we pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of new life. We thank you for the fact, Father, that being reborn is something that you do in us. We're grateful that the power for new birth comes from the blood of your Son. And Father, because this new life comes from you and not from ourselves, the change and the transformation in our life will only be effective as we look to your Son and not ourselves for the strength to overcome our failures. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And I pray that every day of our life that we can continue to tell the old, old story. And may just one more person come to know you because of the conviction that they feel from your Holy Spirit. Father, again, thank you for all that you do for us. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.